you guys all set your New Year's resolutions? Have you, have you made your, your plans? Yeah. Uh, Russ doesn't think that, uh, that Jim is a realistic one, but um, <laughs> I don't know, Russ. I'm working on it. I'm going to be working on it. I've got lots to work on right here, so this is the year for that. I've got uh, plenty of personal goals, and, um, and I think uh, one, of my, one of my most exciting goals this year is uh, to take you guys on a deeper dive with, uh, with the Scripture than we've even been before. And uh, I'm excited about that, and I hope that, uh, that you guys can get excited about it too. I know that we could spend time paddling around in the shallow waters, and sometimes it's nice and warm and cozy there. But there's so much that God wants to give you, and uh, so much that He has already given us in His Word that I can't stand idly by. I've got to get involved. I've got to dive in, and we've got to go deep. What that means is that you're going to, it's going to require you be ready on a Sunday morning with, uh, with, with maybe with paper and pen or with a, some sort of digital notebook or something, but you're going to need to take a little closer, pay a little closer attention, take a little, uh, a few more notes because, um, because I want us to be, I want us to be, uh, what's the word? I want us to be well-trained, well-skilled in understanding Scripture. At the end of the day, uh, if things change and we get older, if that happens, if that happens, Scott, if things change and we get older, I want to have duplicated the teaching abilities of this church so that it's exponential. So you're not just listening to one teacher or a handful of teachers, but that each of you could teach the Scripture to your neighbor. It doesn't make any sense to me that we should become dependent upon a single personality or upon a small group of gifted communicators. I think what we need is to be well-trained in the Scripture ourselves. Not to say that you have to be a public speaker. I know, Russ, you did a great job. I could see you were nervous up here. It's not your favorite thing, I know. But you did great. But you don't have to be a public speaker. I still want you to be an excellent communicator of the Word in your own family, to your spouse, with your own, your own friends, and, uh, and, uh, and perhaps your kids, your grandkids. And in the community around you, one-on-one -on -one with other people, I want you to be able to answer questions that come across your desk, as it were. I, uh, I am convinced that, the, uh, that the, the, the depth of the church is of paramount importance. Jesus had lots of people that followed him. Of those who followed him during the good times, uh, there were really just a, a handful of them that stuck with him through the bad times. When Jesus began to preach difficult sermons, the hordes that had followed him, looking for miracles, looking for signs and wonders, they departed because his words challenged them or confused them or brought them to a place where they just couldn't, they, they couldn't do that. And, uh, and Jesus was not afraid to say the hard things that he said. For a church to thrive, I think it's super important 
that we're not afraid of talking about horrid things. And God has spoken many horrid things in his word. I think it's important for us to understand his tone, to understand his language, to understand his intention. It's all good. It's Sunday morning. It's distracting. It's good. <laughs> See, you've got to practice these things too. Uh, Irving, he's so cute. I believe that, uh, that God wants us to be robust in our faith, not drawn to the glitz and the glamour, not looking for the toys or the freebies, not... Uh, impressed by the show, but able to understand the deep things of God and to answer tough questions. I had an interesting question came uh, came to me this week from a friend who may be watching online. If you're watching, I won't say your name. This was a, a question came to him from a friend. Now, this friend of mine who off, who asked me the question is is no expert when it comes to biblical things. He's got plenty of wisdom in other areas, but biblical things are just out, a little out of his depth. So he asked me a question, and the question was, do you not think that God is inconsistent when it comes to dealing with sin? The two examples that were brought to him, this question was brought to him, and he couldn't answer it, so he brought it to me. The question was, God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden for eating fruit from a tree. But David, the beloved king of Israel, murdered his friend and, uh, and, and co-warrior after committing adultery with his wife. And David is not removed from his royal throne, but instead receives the blessing of God. Do you not find this inconsistent? So, how would you answer that question? You don't have to answer it out, out loud right now. Um, it would be fun, uh, but this is not the forum for that. But I want you to sit with that question for just a minute and contemplate. How would you answer that question in a godly way. Well, the tools that you would need would be, first of all, you need to understand scripture. You need to know the scripture and be familiar with the stories that are raised. But then more than that, you'd have to understand the theology behind it. And, uh, and you'd need to have some sort, of, some sort of background in that to answer a tough question like that. Now, I think you ought to have that knowledge. You ought to have that answer. I believe the Holy Spirit can inspire you and he can do so by activating what you have given him to work with. Hence the Bible reading plan for all of you and the encouragement to read the Bible from cover to cover this year and make it part of your goal. Because if you read the whole thing, you'll be more familiar with the God of the Bible. Although, of course, reading it is going to raise a million questions of their own. But if you're familiar at least with the text, you'll be a little bit more well-suited to answer that question. Then, of course, you will have had to ask the hard questions when you were reading through the Bible yourself. As you're reading through and you come to tough passages that don't fit your culture, they don't fit your, your ethical values, they don't fit your understanding, you, you look and say, well, I, I thought Jesus was, was gentle and kind. I thought God was slow to anger and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, but this seems very different. When you encounter occasions like that in the scripture, you'll need to stop, spend some time there, wrestle through it, come to a conclusion, perhaps with the help of some companions who are reading the Bible with you. 
And if you don't have any live companions, there are lots of dead companions that you can bring with you. Uh, that sounds a little weird, but they have written commentaries in ages past. And you can break out the commentary, and you can read their writings along with your Bible, and you can get a better understanding. Why is it important? Well, I'll tell you why. Because there are people all around us who have misunderstood God because the language of creation, the language of circumstance, the language of tragedy, the language of pain and disappointment has confused them. And they don't see how God can be both actively engaged in our lives and willing to allow us to go through these hard things. You hold the keys to their heart through the knowledge that God will give you right here in the scripture. Not as argumentative, not as those trying to win a debate, but those who can genuinely give thoughtful answers to people's difficult questions, or if not answers, at least the direction towards the answer. And so my introduction to the year, to the new year, is I want you to know that we're going to take a deep dive into Scripture here at Living Hope Family Church with the intention of empowering you to be well-trained in the Word of Righteousness. Okay, so that's what you can expect when you come here. There'll probably be very little glitz. There'll probably be very little glamour. There'll probably be not all that much in terms of freebies, except, of course, delicious breakfast on Sunday morning. Thank you, Stephanie, for a delicious breakfast this morning. Um, but uh, as, you, as you come, bring your Bible. Come with intention. Thank you, Russ. Come and drink from the water that Christ is pouring out. It's living water, and it will nourish your soul and those around you. Okay, there you go. That's the admonition for the beginning of the year. Now, let's dive in. You guys ready for this? We have 25 minutes on the clock. Okay, that was all introduction. It wasn't actually sermon. All right, so stretch. Go ahead. If you want to stand up and stretch, you're welcome to. Or you want to say your neighbor, oh boy, here we go. We're in for it. Break open your Bible. We're going to be taking a look at a passage of Scripture in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. And I am entitling this sermon series, They Asked for a King. They Asked for a King. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament uh, with the intention of understanding some of the New Testament a little bit better. As you know, we've just gotten through the Christmas season, and there are some names, some place names, some people, some prophetic words that are sort of ubiquitous with the Christmas season. You hear them in Christmas carols. You've heard them in church. You've heard about Bethlehem, haven't you? Important place. Bethlehem is important because that's where Jesus was born. But Bethlehem was an important place before Jesus was born there. And it's important for us to know why God chose Bethlehem, of all places on the earth, to bring the light of the world. It's also important to know who this person was that Jesus is said to be the son of. He is known as the son of David, isn't he? Son of David. And, uh, of course, we know his father's name was Joseph, but Joseph wasn't actually Jesus' father because the Holy Spirit was the one who, uh, uh, who implanted Jesus in the womb of, of Mary. Uh, Mary and Joseph had not come together. So, so uh, he was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so who is this David that Jesus is 
said to be the son of, and why is that important? Think about it for a minute. In uh, in the New Testament accounts of Jesus' miracles, perhaps you'll remember a fellow by the name of Bartimaeus. Remember blind Bartimaeus? Does that ring a bell? Blind Bartimaeus, who was a, a blind beggar uh, uh, outside the, the city of Jericho, and uh, Jesus encountered this blind beggar as he was making his final approach to Jerusalem just a week before he was to be crucified, a week or two before he was to be crucified. And, uh, and Bartimaeus uh, heard the crowds coming and began to yell from the side of the road, Have mercy on me, son of David. Remember that? Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And the louder uh, he, uh, the, the, the more they tried to quiet him down, the louder he yelled until Jesus came by and said, What is it that you want? And he said, I want to be healed. I want to see. And uh, Jesus healed him. It was a profound miracle recovery of sight to the blind. But what was perhaps even more profound was that that this blind man was able to see something that the people of Israel at the time were a little slow in picking up on, that Jesus was the promised son of David. Who is this son of David? Well, maybe you already know, but I think it's important for us to go back and to see where those ideas come from, because they're already a thousand years old by the time Jesus shows up and Bartimaeus is healed. So why don't we take a look into some of that? Why is Bethlehem important? Why is David important? And, um, and we'll, we'll be taking a, a, a gander at, uh, at Bethlehem in the ancient past. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, this is a prophetic word from the prophet Isaiah given in the 8th century B.C., Isaiah was prophet during the times of, uh, of uh, King Uzziah and, uh, and subsequently King Ahaz and then King Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And um, Isaiah is the Christmas prophet. Of course, he's a lot more than that. He's also the prophet who prophesies the suffering servant. But uh, he's one of my favorites in the Old Testament. Maybe you like him too. There are passages in Isaiah that are so profoundly triumphant. They're wonderful. There are also passages that are very um, uh, very strong polemic against the, the wickedness of the day. But, uh, but I love this passage in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Hold on there. Don't read any further. Uh, let's just think just briefly about the promises of this leader uh, who's going to arise from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots is going to bear fruit. It's an interesting image. It's The image that we have is that there was once a fruitful vine, and the vine was somehow, it was cut down or burned to the ground. It was, it was destroyed. And there's nothing left but the rootstock. And somehow that rootstock continues to, continues to grow. And out of that rootstock will come 
Isaiah says, a shoot. It will spring forth. It will become a branch, and the branch will bear fruit. And what is he prophesying? He's prophesying that, essentially, the royal lineage, the house of David, who is the son of Jesse, the royal lineage is going to be destroyed, is what he's prophesying. But when it is destroyed, it won't be altogether destroyed. There will still be roots in the ground. And although there'll be nothing on the surface to give you any hope that there will be any, anything to come from this, a shoot will spring forth at a time when you do not expect it. And from that shoot will come this branch who will be a king. He's going to rule and he's going to rule the nations. And look at the things that he's going to do. He's going to be filled with the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, there's going to be a divine nature to his rule. He is going to be inspired by God. He's not just going to be a powerful king, a great warrior. He's not just going to be someone who has brilliant ideas. He's actually going to be united with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God will rest upon him. It won't just alight. It won't just come and be upon him for a moment and then go away. The Spirit of the Lord is going to reside. It's going to rest. It's going to find home in him. This king is going to be a godly king, first and foremost, godly. What does that suggest for you and me in terms of a ruler? Well, I don't know that we've had any godly rulers that we can point to. Um, certainly not in recent times, have we? I think we've been well aware of the human flaws of our leaders, haven't we? How wonderful to have somebody who would be so inspired by God that they would be, uh, they would be aligned with what he determines as righteousness. But, my friends, I give you this little spoiler alert. No man, no woman. No person on earth can be this except the one upon, the home, upon whom the Holy Spirit rests. Only he can be this. It's a promise of an impossible ruler. But it's the one we yearn for. And we'll read in a minute what that actually, what that actually becomes. But take a look. He's got, all these, he's got all these gifts of the Holy Spirit Wisdom, might, understanding, knowledge, the fear of the Lord. I mean, if we could just start there, if we could just start with leaders who fear God, wouldn't that be a beginning? Yeah? Leaders who fear God more than they fear men. Wow. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He actually delights in it. It's not just terrified of God, but it's his delight to be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see. I think most of us judge by what our eyes see. Have you ever scrolled through social media and judged by what your eyes see? We've become a little bit better at, uh, at picking our way through that and perceiving what may or may not be legitimate news, haven't we? I think COVID taught us that. During COVID, we were all so bored. We were all scrolling through, and we saw all kinds of nonsense across there. And somehow, thank God, uh, somebody somewhere said, oh, that's, you know, that's not true. That's fake. And here are ways that you can tell that something is fake. I still don't know that we figured out a way to know whether things are real or fake. But at least we're all aware that they probably are all fake, right? So, but how can we not judge by what our eyes see? We always judge by what our eyes see, don't we? But not the king who's going to rule from on high, 
not the one that our hearts yearn for, not the one that we all actually secretly look for whenever we elect a leader, whenever we put someone in a position of leadership, whether it's in a church or in a business or in a local community or even on a national level, when we look for leaders, we look for people who will be impartial. We look for people who will judge not just what they see. We want that kind of leader. Secretly, we're looking for it. And when somebody leads in a manner unlike this, we are disappointed and become disloyal. He will not judge by what his eyes see or, dis or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, well, I mean, how in the world is he going to judge then? If you don't judge by what your eyes see and you don't judge by what your ears hear, well, he's going to judge by actually digging in and finding out what really took place. This promised king that Isaiah is speaking about, who's going to come from the line of David, this promised king, who we know is Christ, doesn't judge you and doesn't judge me by what the eyes see or the ears hear. I think in many ways that ought to be very encouraging to you. Because most of us are probably not all that proud of ourselves. We're probably not all that excited about what we've achieved. And we're grateful that the Lord doesn't judge us as less than because of what he sees in us or what he may hear about what we've done. But on the flip side, it could also make you feel very unsettled, especially if you've had a real season of victory and if you're very proud of yourself. If you feel like you've done really, really well and you are parading yourself before God because of that, please know this, that God is not impressed by what you look like on the outside or even the reputation that you may have amongst others. But God, he actually gets down to the truth of the matter. He finds out what the truth is. So on the one hand, that's an encouraging statement. On the other hand, it's a very sobering statement. Lest we should stand before God with a sense of pride and arrogance. So let us all come before God humbly. For this leader who is going to rule with the rod of iron, as it were, he, he will know everything about us. So we ought to live circumspectly, ought, ought we not? From this passage, I think we have the foundations of uh, Christian ethics. Because the leader that we're looking for is demonstrating a leadership which we all then will follow. And we are to emulate the same value system. And, uh, and the ethics are defined for us here. Not judging with your eyes or with your ears is very important, uh, very important uh, uh, church ethics. That, that we don't judge one another on outward appearance, external appearance, or even on reputation. But that we learn to work with each other and to walk with each other in the here and now. That we learn to love each other, not by judgments that are preconceived. Does that make sense? Anyway, moving on. Uh, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. It's easy for us to prefer those who have something to offer us, but Christ comes to judge with equity and to restore to those from whom uh, things have been taken um, and, and the meek, the, the ones who are not mighty to take back for themselves what belongs to them. He, he comes in and he issues the orders and he restores what has been stolen and what has been taken. I love this passage about the leader. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. What is this statement? Well, he is 
not a violent God, but he is most assuredly a just God who will bring recompense on the wicked. But how does he slay the wicked? Not with a sword. He slays them with the word of his mouth. How do you slay someone with your words? Well, you cut through the arrogance, you break through all the defenses, and you bring a person to their knees, and he will slay the wicked with the very words of his mouth. What a powerful and wonderful leader that will be. Someone whose, whose command of language is so powerful that swords do not need to be drawn. We can beat our swords into plowshares, and we can beat our spears into pruning hooks. Because God will not need the weapons of our warfare, which in our world are carnal. But he will come with the mighty word of his mouth and he will rain down judgment on the wicked and recompense and restoration for the righteous, for the poor. How powerful is that? This is a beautiful promise of the king who will come. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I can't help but see in that... The promise that our God is not going to be perverse. He's not, going to be, he's not going to be like so many of the leaders that we've seen in at least, well, a couple of decades. Three decades I've been in America, and I've heard many things about politicians who uh, did not have the belt of truth. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and Jesus, our Lord, is not sexually motivated. It's not coming to take what he wants, rape and pillage. He is pure and righteous and holy. And in his economy, in his government, there's value on every individual. But most especially, he has girded himself with self-control and righteousness so that so that we can breathe a sigh of relief. I mean, aren't the three big ones, money, power, and sex, isn't that what corrupts, right? Not for Jesus. Not for Jesus. How wonderful, this root from Jesse, this, this shoot from the, from the stump of Jesse. Interesting, by the way, uh, that the word root um, or the word branch, I beg your pardon. The word branch is a, uh, a Hebrew word. And, um, and it, for those of you who understand a little bit about the Hebrew words and how they're formed, the Hebrew would write, uh, the Jewish people would write out their, their letters with the consonants. The, the vowels are not included in the, um, in, the, in the writing, and they have to be learned. The intonation has to be learned and the certain vowels and so forth. And then in the uh, Masoretic text, you have, uh, you have little symbols for the vowels that are included in the Hebrew writings. But original Hebrew is just consonants strung together. And, um, and in fact, when they write them together, they write them from, from, from right to left, and they don't put spaces between the words. You have to know when the words begin and when the words end. And uh, that's very interesting. Uh, most words are made up of three uh, consonants and um, uh, perhaps four, but uh, you can tell if there are extra consonants in a word. You, you can see the root word in the you know, in the initial consonants, and then the extra consonant or two will give you an idea of what vowels would be included, and that would lead you to an understanding of which particular word is is written. So, anyway, it's it sounds complicated. It's not terribly complicated. I, I think uh, it's actually quite beautiful. But uh, 
the, um, the, the, the vowels, uh, the, the consonants, I beg your pardon, for the word branch are N, are what we would consider as N, uh, a Z, and an, and an R. So um, they, uh, that's not the Hebrew, that's our English version of that. But the, um, the Z is a sort of a T-Z sound, so it sounds like Netzer, Netzer. And, um, and it's the root word, it means branch, uh, it's the root word uh, for the word Netzareth, Nazareth. So interestingly enough, Jesus is the fulfillment of this because he is the branch that grows from the stump of Jesse. He's known as the branch, the, the, the promised one. Isaiah speaks about that more. The, uh, the other prophets, I think Zechariah speaks about the branch uh, when he speaks of Zerubbabel or perhaps uh, uh, one of the others. But it um, speaks about this promised branch that becomes a theme that there's going to be a branch. And Jesus then goes on to say, I am the vine. Uh, you know, my, my father is the vine. I'm the, what was, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Anyway, he, he gives this idea uh, and, and follows it through. But... But the word Netzer uh, is possibly, maybe, part of the root of the name Netzareth, Nazareth. It's not certain, but scholars can see a correlation there anyway. It's possible that in the gospel where it says that Jesus was to be called, or that the Messiah was to be called a Nazarene, maybe it's referencing an idea that came forth from this passage in Isaiah 11, that the branch would come. The Netzer, and he would be a he would be a, a branch branchman. So Nazareth probably means Branchville, you know, like Centerville, like Branchville, and um, and Jesus was the branch who came from Branchville. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> you know, God is actually quite thorough with his prophetic words when he gives prophetic words in the Old Testament. This is now seven hundred years before Christ. When he gives those prophetic words, he fulfills them, and he fulfills them perfectly. In fact, in the in the realm of Christian apologetics, it's one of those it's one of those sort of strong arguments for the validity of uh, you know Christ's claim to be the Messiah, because the prophetic words are so powerfully and and, and perfectly fulfilled. It's it's very hard to fulfill three or four prophetic utterances in, in a single person's life, but the hundreds of prophetic utterances that are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, whether it be his birth, his death, his burial, the spices that were given to him, you know, even at his birth or, or at his death, the, um, uh, the, the people that he gathered around him, the places that he went to, the, the words that he used, the, even the, the, the utterances on the cross as he's dying. There are so many of these that are so perfectly aligned, it's very unlikely. I mean, like superbly unlikely that Christ could have fulfilled these things. So again, from the realm of apologetics where you're trying to convince people about Christ, it's one of those, it's one of those, you know, box checkers. You can say, yeah, he fulfilled prophecy. God said it was going to happen this way. And when it did happen this way, you kind of have to pay attention to that. It's not extremely convincing for everybody, but for me, it's more convincing than I even need. And, um, and so I love that. But let's have a look a little bit further here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse, verse 6. 
This is what Messiah is going to achieve through his rule. Listen. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. Can you imagine a world in which all the danger has been eliminated? The dangerous ones themselves have had a nature change so that they are no longer dangerous. The natural danger of the earth in which we live transformed. I'll tell you what, there is no earthly king who can achieve this. There is no earthly king. No, um, no amount of, uh, of uh, awareness of our environment can achieve this. No amount of self-loathing and, uh, and veneration of Mother Earth can achieve this. There's, there's nobody who can do this. What does this sound like? What does this place sound like? It sounds like Eden, doesn't it? It sounds like the idyllic Eden that God built in the beginning where danger did not lurk in every animal, certainly lurked in the serpent, but uh, danger was lurking in the hearts of Adam and Eve in Eden. The danger was not with the lions and the leopards the danger was not with the serpents and the uh, and the uh, and the and the, the the vipers as such. The only reason why the serpent was dangerous was because Adam and Eve already had desire in their hearts, which was confirmed by the serpent's temptation. Christ has come to restore us to Eden, but much better, because He has come to restore us to Eden without sin without the ability to sin, without that in our heart which would cause us to rebel against God. That's what he comes to bring. And in the Eden that he is restoring us to, it's a better than Eden. It's a never-before-seen Eden. It's one where the cow and the bear shall graze and the young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, there may be some... Uh, some environmentalists who may think that that's just a really bad idea. We've got to let the lion be the lion. Let, but um, but there's a promise in here. Don't get hung up on the, you know, for those of you who are nature lovers, don't get hung up on lions eating straw. Um, it's it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's not necessarily to be true that the uh, that the lions will eat straw. No doubt, God will have some version of delicious food that the lions will find very very satisfying. So don't worry about the lions. But even if they do eat straw, what's the point? What's the point of this? The point is that the strong will no longer feed upon the weak. That's what's being said here. Jesus is going to restore order in such a way that those who are gifted and strong and better than and, 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 and mighty do not take advantage of those who are weak. This is what true Eden looks like where the mighty are humbled and eat the same food 
that the lowly do and find it satisfying. We could all probably do a little more straw in our diet. <laughs> a little more fiber, right? The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I want you to know that this is the, the longing of all of our hearts, secretly and maybe even publicly, but no man on earth can give it to us. And it is important for us to recognize that so we don't set our focus on people here. In summary, this first introduction to a series called They Asked for a King, I wanted to present to you the king as God says he's going to be in what is the most beautiful and profound prophetic passage from 700 years before Christ was born some 2,700 years ago. And it's a vision that I want you to have in front of you. This is the vision of Christ himself who will be king over all the earth, but who is currently king over you, over me, over this fellowship. We submit ourselves to the lordship and the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. And this is, his, this is what he will do, and it is even now. It is the ethics of his kingdom. These are the things that he yearns for us to implement as we see the kingdom of God manifested on earth as it is in heaven. We cannot build Christ's kingdom without Christ here, but we can display the same moral values as we look for our king. This morning, the worship team sang a song uh, about sing to the king who is coming to reign. This is the beginning of that. Now, next week, I'm going to take you into the, um, the story of Bethlehem. We're going to take a look at the first mentions of Bethlehem, uh, some of the first mentions of Bethlehem. We'll see some really ugly stories about Bethlehem, and then we're going to find one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible that took place in Bethlehem. Next week, we'll talk about that, that story. It's one of my favorites, a very short, very short book of the Bible, and I'm going to give you a little bit of homework so you can go home and read it, and that way when we talk next week, I don't have to read through the whole passage, the whole book, in order for you guys to know what we're talking about. So are you ready for this little reading plan extra? You can add it to your reading plan or even check it off on your reading plan if you like. Uh, it's not doesn't come in the reading plan until quite a bit later, but I'm giving it to you today. I want you to read the book of Ruth. I want you to read the book of Ruth, and I want you to see one of the most beautiful stories in all the Bible. It is a powerful story. It's full of wonder. It's got romance in it. It's got uh, redemption in it. It's also got some pretty tricky stuff, some pretty difficult things. It raises some very strong questions about all kinds of things from immigration to uh, the liberation of women to the value of women in society. It talks about, it talks about, uh, about men's role and their place and how to treat your workers, uh, how to be a good boss or how to be a good servant for that matter. Servant is not a word we like, but maybe employee fits us better. There are a lot of things in the book of Ruth, and we'll go through it together. But we're going to see beautiful stories in there that point us towards Bethlehem and the star 
that one day we'll be born there. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the promise of a king. We're asking for a king. But we don't want just anyone. We want only Jesus. The one who fulfills the Isaiah 11 passage. The one who comes to lead us in victory, in peace, in redemption. Lord, I pray as we start the new year that each of us will bow our hearts and make our hearts loyal to you. Pour out your grace on this fellowship, on each one here and on all those listening. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.